0: everyone. Yeah, I'm not sure that many of us know about InterServe, but uh, we are a very old organisation, 162 years old. It's the only organisation, uh, only international organisation, which started in India. And uh, the people we reach out to are in Asia and the Middle East only. But people come from across the world, but the area of ministry is Asia and the Middle East. And uh, our aim is to send professionals into places uh, where missionaries traditionally cannot go. So, the traditional missionaries cannot go to many places. It's not possible to get visas for evangelists to go to places, but uh, computer professionals, uh, doctors, engineers easily get visas into the hard places. And InterServe is in the work of uh, enabling people to reach out to those uh, who are in uh, different places. Now, for uh, I see this is a very young uh, crowd, and I know Bangalore has also got a very young population. Uh, In case any of you are interested in a small exposure, a mission trip of what tent-making ministry looks like. I know that the traditional ministry many of us may be familiar with, but how does tent-making ministry look like? Uh, InterServ is happy to uh, facilitate a trip for a few of you, maybe four or five or seven or different groups of youngsters who can come alongside and see how our partners work in the area of microfinance or in the area of publishing. Uh, in different parts of the country, uh, in uh, social uh, skill helps. All of these things uh, we find our partners across uh, the country and across the world. So there's small trips uh, that are possible. I have with me a few uh, brochures and uh, a collection of articles uh, on uh, our work in prisons. We have a regular uh, magazine which is called In Focus. Uh, you can pick it up from. I'll probably keep it in the last benches. Would that be okay? Yeah, so you can just pick it up when you're on your way out and uh, have a look at uh, what's there. This morning, even as we look at God's word, uh, I'm looking at uh, how do we trust God through challenging times. There is no question that uh, we do live in challenging times. Uh, When we look at, when we mean challenging times, we know that uh, life has become difficult. It was just amazed to think that uh, a month or so, a little more than a month ago... An innocent event like singing Christmas carols could lead to people being arrested and uh, taken to the police station and put behind bars. That's the kind of time we live in. Now, I know most of southern and western India has not been affected as yet, but definitely large parts of North India face a lot of challenges. Now, we're going to look at a particular book in the Bible. Yeah, I promise I won't do, do the study of the entire book. If I say the whole book of the Bible, you may be thinking it's 3rd John or 2nd John. uh, But it's a book from the Old Testament. It's an interesting book because it's the only book that does not have any mention of God in it. Anyone knows which book that is? Esther. Esther. I know that almost all of you know that it's a book of Esther. It's also interesting for another reason. That's the only book in which India is mentioned. So I think both are related. If you mention uh, India, God is... uh, Missing, Of course, we have a lot of religiosity in our country, but uh, where the worship of the true God is there. So trusting God through challenging times, and uh, the character I'm going to look at, we'll see uh, very soon, is probably not Esther. Many of us are familiar with Murphy's Law. It happens all the time. It happened, It's happening to me today. Uh, I didn't know that uh, Prime Minister Modi is coming today, so I booked a flight to return back to Bombay this afternoon, and he's coming in the afternoon. So, the unexpected happens. So, Murphy's Law says, if anything can go wrong, it will. And I'm hoping that is not true for me this afternoon. (laughs) Chris Holm's Second Law says, if things are going well, something will go wrong. Then, there is an extended Murphy's Law which simply says, if a series of events can go wrong, it will do so in the worst possible sequence. Then, there is... uh, Gattuso's extension of Murphy's, Murphy's Law, which says, nothing is so bad that it can't get worse. Probably the unspeakable law, as soon as you mention something good, if it's good, it goes away. If it's bad, it happens. And probably the last one, an optimist believes that we live in the best of possible all possible worlds. A pessimist fears this is true. Okay, we are going to not look at uh, Esther, but we're going to look at a character called Mordecai uh, in my church. I was preaching a series of messages on unsung heroes of the Old Testament, and there are many unsung heroes. We talk about the Abraham and the Davids and the Jacobs and the josephs, and they 're all it 's valid, but we forget often the Bezalels, the Ohaliyabs, the Mordecais, and here we see. Mordecai is a mostly unknown character. For those who are familiar with scripture, they know the name of Mordecai, but otherwise, uh, his name is not uh, well known. He's one of the most important characters in Jewish history, actually. He's the one who instigated uh, and also prevented the complete annihilation of the Jewish people. The credit is largely given to Esther. She had definitely a big role to play in it. But you can see that Mordecai is the person who was behind what happened. He's the one who saw that God was at work. Even though God is not mentioned in this book, the word prayer is not mentioned in this book. There's only fasting mentioned in this book. There's no word worship mentioned in this book. You know, It's almost a book without any reference to that which we consider sacred and Christian. But in this, we see that there was this man called Mordecai who had this stout and strong confidence in God. In chapter 1 of uh, Esther, uh, we know the story, so we are not going to look through it. You can keep your Bible open in the book of Esther, but uh, we won't look through all the passages. But we are familiar with what happens in chapter 1. The king has thrown a lavish party which lasts for 180 days. That's six months. It's a huge party and after that is over, he has celebration in the citadel of Susa for seven days. And uh, during those celebrations, people from different cultures were welcome and they celebrated in their own way. They drank wine in the uh, manner that pleased them the most. And uh, soon after that, we see that uh, the king goes beyond certain limits and he calls for his queen Vashti to be displayed before the people and uh, queen vashti refuses to do so and the king is very upset king xerxes is very upset and he says this won't do and he consults with his uh, uh, old uh, his uh, leaders and the nobles tell him no this won't do uh, what you need to do you banish her from the kingdom so he banishes her and she no longer holds the throne of the queen in chapter 2 the king is uh, again feeling the need for a queen and a search is on for the queen and into this search enters the picture of a young girl by the name of Esther. Esther is taken to the palace and uh, the, queen, uh, the king is very pleased with her. Now, Esther is Mordecai's cousin and Mordecai is the one who bought her up from the time she was a little child. In chapter 2, the ending is a slightly different story. The chapter ends with the story of Mordecai who was at the gate... Now, when we talk about gate, it's not these small gates, it's actually the place where uh, things happen. It's the happening place of town. And at the gate, he was there, and he gets to know of a plot to kill the king. And he informs Esther about it, and Esther informs the king, an investigation is made, they find that the plot is true, and both of these uh, men are hung. Chapter 3, verse 1, I read from there. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Mordecai. For so the king had commanded concerning him. After these events, after Mordecai had saved the life of the king, what does the king do? He rewards Mordecai, right? Your, your scripture reads differently? Okay. It, after these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamedatha, the Agagite. You know, our natural way of thinking, if we look at chapter 2, the ending of chapter 2, chapter 3, when it began, should have begun after these things. Yes? This king's life has just been saved. And after these events are over, the guy who saved the king's life ought to have been honored, ought to have been promoted. But what you see over there is it is not Mordecai who is honored, it is Haman, the son of Hamedata, the Agagite, who was honored. Now this leaves us in a very odd position. Who is this Haman? We only have this much of an identification of him. He is a son of Hamedata, the Agagite. Now, the Agagites are not a tribe. It's quite possible. Uh, The Agagites were uh, descendants of King Agag, whom we find in 1 Samuel chapter 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul was sent to this army to destroy the Amalekites. And uh, we know that Saul was uh, disobedient. He disregarded God's command and uh, spared the best of the spoil. And he spared also the life of the king. And that king was King Agag. Now, after rebuking uh, Saul, uh, Samuel had Agag put to death for all of the atrocities committed by him uh, against the nation of Israel. But it is the descendants of Agag who are probably the Agagites. So when we look at Haman, the son of Hamedata, he's he is son of Hamedata, the Agagite. So quite possibly, he is a descendant of King Agag. Now, which means to us one thing, that not only was Mordecai not promoted, it is quite possibly an enemy of the Jews who was promoted to the highest place. It's a tragedy. You know, because Mordecai is the one who saved the life of the king. We know nothing noteworthy about Haman, but here is a person who is possibly an enemy of the Jewish people who was raised to the highest place. The first thought I have for this morning is life is not always fair. Life is not always fair. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 11. I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to the men of ability, for time and chance Overtake them all. The race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the warriors. Bread is not to the wise. And wealth not to the discerning. Nor favor to men of ability. Scriptures remind us that life is not fair. Life is not predictable. Life does not follow a sequence we expect it to follow. Most of us who have children are quite aware that we have heard this many times from our children. It's not fair. Especially if you have two or more children. You know, you allowed this, you didn't allow that. It's not fair. One of the earliest things I think we need to teach our children is that life is not fair. Not that we are not fair. We hope to be fair as parents, we hope to be people who uphold justice because God expects us to reflect his own justice. But life is not fair. There are things that happen that we do not expect in the flow of things. And here is what happened. Here is Mordecai who has rescued the life of the king and on the other hand, the tragedy that happens is the enemy of the Jewish people among whom Mordecai is one, is the one who is promoted to the highest place in Kingdom. In scripture, we find that all men of old did face difficulties. It's not unusual. We find all the uh, great heroes of scripture faced difficult times. Abraham, he struggled with childlessness to the extent that he despaired of the promise that God gave him. He reached a place where he says, What God can you give me now if you have not even given me a child? People of old struggled through a lot. Joseph, he struggled because he had dreams. But after he had the dreams, life only was going downhill. He was sold to the Ishmaelites. He went into Potiphar's house. He was faithful in Potiphar's house. How was he rewarded for his faithfulness in Potiphar's house? He was sent to a dungeon. Because he was so faithful that he refused to be in a relationship with Potiphar's wife. That's what she desired. But he knew he had to be faithful. And the reward for his faithfulness was he was sent to the dungeon. And he remained over there for many years. Life works in that way. And sometimes we struggle over the fact that life is not fair. Sometimes we recognize that uh, we did not get what we deserved. We ought to have probably got more marks in our examinations. We ought probably to have got the promotion the last time we ought probably to have been transferred or not to have been transferred, depending on what is our desire for ourselves. We ought to have had some things happen to us and they have not happened. But then when we look at the cross of Christ, that's a place where we look and we see, what's Pharaoh there? Jesus is the one, the sinless one, the only one who has ever lived in all of time and history who was guilty of absolutely no sin or no wrongdoing towards another, he was crucified on a tree. And he bears on himself the grief of the betrayal of one of his closest, one of his closest disciples. That was probably an intense grief for him. The physical suffering that he went through. The challenge of the separation in the Godhead. Michael Card writes a beautiful song called Why. He says... Why did it have to be a friend who chose to betray the Lord? Why did he use a kiss to show them? For that's not what a kiss is for. Only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. And only a friend comes close enough to ever cause so much pain. And why did there have to be a thorny crown pressed upon his head? It should have been a royal one made of jewels and gold instead. It had to be a crown of thorns. Because in this life that we live, for all who seek to love, a thorn is all that the world has to give. And why did it have to be a heavy cross he was made to bear? And why did they nail his feet and hands? His love would have held him there. It was a cross for on a cross a thief was supposed to pay. And Jesus had come into this world to steal every heart away. There's no justice, no truth were there seemingly, but in the midst of all of that, Christ redeems for God a whole nation, a whole people of worshippers. In chapter 3, we see that life is not fair. We see the story goes on where Mordecai refuses now to bow before Haman because a Jew will not bow before anything, whether it's an idol or whether it's a person. Mordecai refuses to bow and the king's servants request him, will you please bow? When Haman passes, he refuses to do so. And they inform Haman about it. Haman, when he hears about his, it, is very upset, obviously, a very proud person. And uh, he's not pleased that somebody would choose to disregard uh, uh, his eminence. So, what Haman does is that he does not want to just destroy Mordecai alone. Haman is what you would call a big thinker. In today's world, we always want people to be big thinkers. Uh, I worked in corporate settings where you know our bosses will say, why are you thinking so small? Think big, think big. And this was a big thinker. He didn't want to just destroy Motecai because that would be too small for him. He said, let me destroy the entire people who believe like he does. I want to destroy all th- those people who are like him. And then he gets the king to agree on the complete annihilation of the Jewish people. Now remember this is Persia and in Persia once a law is passed even the king cannot revoke it. And he has slyly got the king to agree on the annihilation of the Jewish people and a date has been fixed. In chapter 4 we hear, see that Mordecai hears about what has happened. He shows his grief by tearing his clothes and wearing sackcloth and putting ashes on himself. And Esther hears that this has happened to Mordecai, and she sends one of the eunuchs to him. And uh, Mordecai informs him what has happened. And uh, he tells her that you need to speak to the king. Now Esther was reluctant. She says that I have not been invited by the king for a very long period. I don't think I should do that. Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther... Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. For who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time a time as this. Esther was hesitant. She knew that if she approached the king, uh, if the king did not extend the golden sceptre to her, she could lose her very life. But then Mordecai charges her from behind and this is what he says. He says, don't think that you will escape because you are in the king's palace. There is no escape for you. This is a dead-end situation. It's like the Israelites at the, when they faced the Red Sea, there was no turning back. And for her, there was no turning back. And then he goes on to say, if you re- remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from an other place. Look at his confidence. His confidence was complete. He says, you can choose to remain silent And it's possible you may remain silent, but don't think that God will ever forsake his people. Don't think that God will ever forsake his people. If you remain silent at this time, God, the sovereign Lord of all of creation, is going to send a deliverance which you will not fully understand. You and your father's house will perish, but God will ensure the deliverance of his people, the Jewish people. And then he reminds her, Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. The second thought for this morning is Mordecai, even though the situation seemed to have gone from bad to worse, the situation was very adverse, he had unswerving trust in God's provision and plan. He had unswerving trust that God would protect the Jewish people. He couldn't be shaken from the trust that he had over there. He knew that God was a God who would uh, lead his people if they led them through the, to the promised land. And now they are, of course, in exile. When this book is written, they are in exile. But nevertheless, he is going to keep for himself a remnant because that's his promise to them. When Auduniram Judson graduated from seminary in the early 1800s, he received a call. He was one of the most brilliant students of the seminary. Uh, He received two offers. One was uh, to be an assistant pastor at a fashionable church in uh, Boston, and the other was a teaching engagement at the same seminary where he studied. But Judson would not stay there. Judson was very sure that God's calling on him was not to uh, minister in that church or to stay on in the seminary. He knew that God was calling him elsewhere. And this is what he wrote to his family, who was trying to persuade him to stay on. He wrote to them and said, My work is not here. God is calling me beyond the seas. To stay here, even to serve God in his ministry, I feel would be only partial obedience. My work is not here. God is calling me beyond the seas. To stay here, even to serve God in his ministry, I feel would be only partial obedience. Judson wanted for himself complete obedience. He finally reaches Burma, what is now called Myanmar, and uh, what is the cost that he paid for his complete obedience to God? He lost five children and two wives to disease and death. Six of his children only survived. Even though he knew Latin, Hebrew, and Greek, it took him approximately 12 hours of study each day to understand the Burmese language. He was imprisoned for 17 long months. And during his imprisonment, he was tied on a bamboo pole with his hands and his feet. And in the night, his feet would be raised above, uh, higher than the rest of his body. And he had to go through uh, excruciating pain as they did that. And what was Aduniram Jutsun doing during these times? He was translating the Bible into Burmese. It took him six years to get his first convert, After 12 years, he had a small church of 18 believers only. But he was the first one who translated the Burmese Bible, the Bible into the Burmese language. He is the first one who wrote the Burmese English Dictionary, which even today is still a standard. And tens of thousands of Burmese Christians today call him the father of their faith. The sacrifices that he made, the sacrifice that he made in obedience to God was costly to him, but yet the rewards are yet being given. So we need to pause and reflect for ourselves. Do we recognize that God has a purpose in our life? No. If God made Esther a queen so that he could rescue his people, the Jewish people, God has a purpose in the way he has made us. Our backgrounds, our homes, the education that we received, the qualifications we have, the place where we work in, all of these are part of God's great plan for his world. And we are all part of that plan that he has. He just did not have a plan only for Esther, He did not have a plan only for Adoniram Jutsun, but he has a plan for each of us. Do we have complete trust that as we live in obedience to him, we are going to be able to fulfill that plan that he has for us? God is calling us to be obedient to that plan. Let's move on from there, chapter 5. Esther now recognizes that she has a role to play and she takes it on seriously. She makes an elaborate plan to invite the king and Haman to a meal. And uh, she invites the king and Haman to the meal. Haman is very thrilled about the invitation. But at the same time, Haman is plotting Mordecai's death. He is building a gallows which is 75 feet high. Now, to get a rough idea of what is 75 feet, it's like an eight-storied building. It was quite a feat in those days to build something that is so high. And he had the gallows built so high for one reason he was going to set an example of Mordecai. Because day by day, there was one thing that was displeasing him, that is, Mordecai was not bowing to him. So he decided to get done with Mordecai before he dealt with the rest of the Jews. And he built a gallows that was so high, so that when Mordecai was hanging up there, eight, eight floors up, you know, everyone would be able to see from any distance the body of a person who was punished because he would not bow down to Haman. Haman was setting him up as more than an example. He was full of rage and anger at him. Now, sometimes our buildings are like the babbles. You know, it is just to show that uh, you know, we are powerful, and that height was meant to indicate that. In Jan 2017, the BSF, the Border Security Force, uh, said that they were planning to put, a, put up a national flag near the atari Waga border, and its height was supposed to be 350 feet and the stated aim is, the Indian flag would be seen both from Amritsar as well as in Lahore. You know, it's, it's not the right kind of thinking. It's a wild kind of thinking. We want to show that the Indian flag can be seen even well deep into Pakistan. And here was Mordecai, who was going to be an example, hanging up there, eight floors up. But when we look again at Christ we see that it's the same kind of confidence that Christ had. When he was hanging up on that cross, there is this two thieves on either side of him. And one of the thieves tells him, uh, tells the other thief to keep quiet, uh, don't speak ill about Jesus, and then he turns to Jesus and he just makes a simple prayer to him. Remember me. you know, Just remember me when you are in paradise. And what does Jesus reply? He says, today... You will be with me in paradise. He had complete confidence that this was not the end. Then in chapter 6, I'll read from verses 1 to 6. During that night, the king could not sleep. So he gave an order to bring the books of, book of records, the chronicles that were read before the king. It was found written what Mordecai had reported concerning Bigtana and Teresh two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers and they had sought to lay hand on king Ahasuerus The king said what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this Then the king's servants who attended him said nothing has been done for him So the king said who is in the court Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows which he had prepared for him. The king's servant said to him, Behold, Haman is standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, What is done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king desire to honor more than me? During the night, the king could not sleep. Actually, the situation was completely out of Mordecai's hand at this time. Haman was the guy who was in power. He had all the power at his disposal. He was the one who had now built a gallow on which he intended to hang Mordecai. But that night, something happens. The king does not get sleep. The Bible tells us sleep is a... Gift from the Lord. You know, it's a Lord who gives unto his children sleep. And here was uh, the king who did not get sleep that night. And when the king did not sleep in the night, he could ask for anything to be done for him. He was a Persian king, he was not an elected uh, uh, role. He was the king who could ask for musicians to be bought to entertain him at whatever late be the hour whether it is 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. He could ask for musicians to be bought. Uh, he could probably ask for uh, you know, his courtiers to be assembled, you know, for him to have a discussion on matters of the state. He could do anything that he chose to do. But he chose to do something strange. He asked for the history books to be bought to him. I don't know whether he was a student who didn't like history, so he thought, if I hear history, I will fall asleep. Some of us have this habit of reading textbooks to that so that we can fall asleep even better. And he asked for the book of records, the chronicles, to be brought and read before the king. Now look even further here. The book of chronicles would mean large number of scrolls. And you know, for some reason, a particular scroll has been chosen, and on that particular scroll, that portion was opened where Mordecai had reported concerning those two men, Biktana and Teresh. You know, you can see over here, something is being orchestrated here by God. The king does not sleep that night. And then he asks for the book of uh, records to be brought, the history books to be brought. And then the scroll is opened at that portion, which talks about what happened to Biktana and Teresh, and how the king's life was saved. And then the king asks, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for for this. And those who were around him said, nothing has been done for him. Now the irony of the situation is, at the same time is Mordecai, the king is now thinking of how to honor Mordecai. On the other side is Haman who is entering the court with the intent of destroying Mordecai. So here is the king with the intent now of honoring Mordecai because he didn't sleep that night and because he read the book of the Chronicles and because he's reminded that he had not rewarded Mordecai accurately, uh, sufficiently. And on the other side, here comes Haman. And here comes Haman thinking that now I'm going to get my dues. And when he comes to the king, the king asks him a question. Uh, what should be done for the one whom the king desires to honor? And pride goes before a fall, it says... Pride is the worst enemy of the human uh, species. Uh, Pride is what often causes us defeat and complete uh, destruction. And here is Haman who is so proud that he says, whom in this world would the king want to honor but... You know, he's so proud that he's sure it cannot be another person. So he puts all his cards on the table and he says, if the king desires to honor somebody, this is what he should do. You know, he should ride on the king's donkey. He should be made to wear the king's robes. He should have the royal ring on him. And one of the king's trusted princes should walk before the king and declare, this will be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. And then, that's where the anticlimax comes. The king tells Haman, all that you have said, do exactly what you have said for Mordecai. I don't know if there was an ECG or something possible, probably uh, Haman's many beats would have skipped, not one beat. He probably turned completely pale because here was his int- uh, the king's intent to honor Mordecai coming clashing along with the uh, desire of uh, Haman to destroy Mordecai. The third thing that we always need to keep in mind is God is the one who orders all the circumstances around us in our life. God is the one who does that. You know, Mordecai could not cause the king to be sleepless. Mordecai did not have enough influence to ensure that he read a book of history. Mordecai had no means of ensuring that the people around the king would open that book to this portion of the scroll which talked about what Mordecai had done. Look at the way God's timing is. He is never in a hurry, but he is always on time. But it is through these instances that Mordecai knows that he can be completely confident in God. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, we see that God causes all things, we know the verse 28, to work together for the good of those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. God causes all things, not some things, not many things, but he causes all things to work together. So you know, when everything seems to go wrong, God knows when to keep the king awake. When everything seems to be working against you, God knows how to make the king ask for the books of history. God continues to work in his own way. Look at Jesus He was betrayed by his own disciple. Judas betrays him. Soon after that, another disciple of his, Peter, denies him. The religious leaders are completely envious of him. Pilate knows he's innocent, but he's a coward deep inside, and he allows Jesus to be sentenced to death. Herod was completely indifferent to Jesus, and the Roman soldiers continued in their acts of cruelty. But at the end of it all, You find an empty grave. At the end of it all, you don't find a figure hanging on a cross, but you find an empty grave. Christ's resurrection is the victory above every injustice, it's a victory of every failure, of every situation which has been unfair to us. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 10 says, 8 to 10 says, Son, though he was, he learned obedience by what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. For son, though he was, he learned in his humanity obedience through what he suffered. You know, Christ is the one who in his death and his resurrection now makes to us available the resource. That we know that in Christ, we are no longer going to be really in an unfair situation. The first thing we said was, life is unfair. But it will never be unfair in the totality of things. It may seem unfair in specific events. But it will not be unfair in the totality of things. God uses the totality of events in our life, all that happens around us, for our good and for his glory. He's a God who works towards that. And we need to live through that in complete trust and obedience. One of the thoughts that has been really staying on in my mind recently has been Christ's command in Matthew chapter 28. He says, go out into the world and make disciples. And then he says, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. You know, teaching them to obey. You know, obedience is so crucial in the Christian life. We can teach, we can keep on teaching, but if there is no obedience, that's not the fulfillment of the great commission that Christ gave us. The commission is teaching them to obey. So no longer can we take a role and say, I'm indifferent to the situation, I have done my part of teaching. No. I have to handhold a person to help the person grow in obedience to walk in obedience to the Lord and that is the second thought are we so sure so dependent on God so able to trust him that we know that when we trust and obey that there is no other way just that we trust and obey and in that trust and obedience God will bring about his plans And finally, the confidence that we have that all things, God orders all things for us, for our good and for his glory. Maybe in our life some of us have come through stages or maybe will come through stages where we find disappointment in the way it seems like life is treating us. Through those periods, what really matters is what the condition of our heart is. Our external circumstances may seem challenging and difficult, but if our heart stays assured that He is the one who called me and faithful is He who has called me, I know that He will fulfill the task for which He has called me and saved me. I'm going to close with the words of a hymn. I've not heard this often sung. Uh, We sang it some 20 years ago when we were singing in a choir. But uh, this is a beautiful song which goes this way. Day by day and with each passing moment... Strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond measure gives unto us each day what he deems best. Lovingly it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Every day the Lord himself is near me with a special mercy for each hour. All my cares he fain would bear and cheer me, He whose name is counsellor and power. The protection of his child and treasure is a charge that on himself he laid. As thy days thy strength shall be in measure, this the pledge to me he made. Help me then in every tribulation so to trust thy promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith's sweet consolation offered me within thy holy word. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, ere to take as from a father's hand, one by one, the days, the moments fleeting, till with Christ the Lord I stand. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, this morning hour, even as we bow our heads in your presence, Lord, We want to thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that no matter how difficult our situation be, when we look at him and his great sacrifice, Lord, we know that our situation is still always better than his was. But yet at this time, to have the confidence, Lord, that through it all, you reign the sovereign one you will fulfill your plans and fulfill your purposes in this world at this time we want to pray for each person here in this room we pray if there is anyone who hasn't enjoyed a close communion with you Lord to know what it is to be in a relationship with you Lord we pray that you will open their hearts to know that it is in that relationship that we can find victory and strength through trying times. I want to pray, Lord, that through your spirit you will move through each person's life, that each person may stand solid before you, Lord, solid not on our own feet, but on the feet that you provide for us, the strength that you give us, Lord. And, Lord, we pray that each day, each trial, each situation, we will be always reminded, Lord, that you are working out your plan through each of those instances, and all things are working for our good. We pray that you'll bless this church, enable each person here, Lord, to grow in their relationship with you, to know you, to love you, and to walk in complete obedience to you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray.